Well, let me just ask you a question as we begin this morning. I mean, what, what's more important than entering into God's kingdom? I mean, what, what's more important than the theme of heaven? What is more important than the afterlife, which is forever and ever and ever and ever? There's nothing more important. I was reading an article this week um, in Cripplegate, and it was about Larry King. Larry King evidently is getting cold feet about dying. And the iconic interviewer has a reputation that is larger than life, but is fixated in some ways on his own death. And this New York Times article titled, Larry King Prepares for Final Cancellation, Mark Leibowitz reported that King told the journalist that he was avoiding death by taking four human growth hormone pills every day, but that in case of death, Larry King has arranged to have his whole body put on ice, pending the discovery for a cure for whatever killed him. It's called cryonics, and it is the process of dropping a human body's temperature to minus 200 Fahrenheit. And the idea is to wait until the remedy, remedy of your disease is perfected, and then they basically pop you into the microwave, then thaw you out, and the cure, the new you, comes out until you contract the next incurable, life-threatening woe, whereupon I suppose the article went on to say you would hop back into the freezer and repeat the cycle. I mean, in theory, if you avoided fatal accidents, you could conceivably live happily ever after by dint of intermittent jaunts in the freezer. But there are only a a few problems that still need to be ironed out. First, no one has ever been successfully thawed. Um, The truth is that our cell walls are too fragile to recover from the process, So part of the risk is hoping that someone in the future cures your disease and that someone else figures out how to raise you from the dead. Secondly, it's illegal to perform cryonics on living people, so you have to die first. But according to companies who perform the procedure, legally dead is not the same as totally dead. And any fan of The Princess Bride knows that some people are only mostly dead. But without Miracle Max to do his thing, a giant leap of faith for mankind to entrust their life to cryonics. In fact, Leibovitch also recorded this in detail. Quote, he said, King told me later that people behind cryonics are all nuts, but at least he knows he will be frozen. He will die with a shred of hope. End of statement. And then King added, other people have no hope. I mean, the truth is, beloved, our only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus said there, do you believe this? I mean, he is our only hope. Now, as you turn in your Bible to John chapter 3, John the Apostle is describing for us the nature of the new birth. So you look at that term, 
to be born again. I could put it in another framework. It's the new birth. To be born again is to be regenerated, or it's the doctrine of regeneration. So if you hear me use those, I might use those interchangeably. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, that's the word. We could say, unless a man has the new birth, or unless somebody's been regenerated, they will not enter the kingdom of God. And certainly, as you open to John chapter 3, we're looking at one of the most captivating passages in all of the Word of God on the doctrine of salvation. And certainly, this passage leads to one of the greatest statements in all of the Bible on John 3.16. And certainly, John 3 is also one of the most misunderstood as well as most ignored passages because of the greatness of the statement in John 3.16. We sometimes seem to not know what comes in front of it and what comes after it. Let me read the text for you. You follow along, and I'll read John 3.1-10. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. May God bless the reading of his scripture. What I want to do this morning is navigate our text around some key principles that describe the need for the new birth. And in describing the need for the new birth, it also defines, if you will, the nature of saving faith. This is a must for us. Now, we begin last week looking first, there on your notes, at the inquiry of Nicodemus. The inquiry of Nicodemus. It said there was a man, in verse 1, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. Now, remember when we started there, we're we're looking at our Bibles. It's in 3.1. But we noted that in some ways, those are chapter headings that were added by publishers. This is a letter that was written. Really, you look back at the end of 2, when it says in 2.23, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, and many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And now here's such a man. It's Nicodemus. He is a, we took time last week, a Pharisee. He is, in other words, he was one of the most religious people in the society. But he was not only a Pharisee, the text says that he was a ruler of the Jews. And when you compare Scripture with Scripture, it made him not only a Pharisee, but he was a member as a ruler of the Jews of the Sanhedrin party. They were the basic supreme court, if you will, for Jewish law and jurisdiction. 
we noted that he came at night, maybe possibly because he didn't want to be embarrassed or didn't want to be seen around Jesus. John seems to cast that word night in kind of the cloak of dark darkness. And as he comes to Jesus, he acknowledges, look at verse 2, we know, Rabbi, you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay, And so he acknowledges that. And that led, secondly, to the disclosure of our Lord. The disclosure of our Lord. That wonderful statement in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is a very important phrase. You'll note that I read it again in verse 5. Jesus said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. If you look down in verse 7, he said it again, you must be born again. He said at the end of verse 8, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so the disclosure of our Lord is regarding the nature of entering the kingdom of God. Now, last week we looked and we said the kingdom of God is equivalent to eternal life. To see the kingdom of God in the text is synonymous with entering the kingdom of God. So anyone in the kingdom of God is a believer. Anyone in the kingdom of God is a Christian. Anyone in the kingdom of God, if you will, has in the scripture eternal life. Now what Jesus challenged him on in his disclosure, unless one is born again, he cannot enter into that place called heaven. And what's amazing in that disclosure is it shocked Nicodemus, did it not? It confused Nicodemus. And I run you right up to where we are on point three, is the confusion of Nicodemus. Jesus made that statement on the new birth or being born again. And Nicodemus, look at verse four, said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He was utterly confused. He had no idea what Jesus was talking about. He is confused to say the least. Jesus in Nicodemus' life and in this text was addressing obviously spiritual birth to Nicodemus. But Nicodemus is fixed on physical birth. And I couldn't help but think, is it any different today? People may speak of religious ceremonies. They may speak of religious heritage. They may even speak of religious pedigree. But without the new birth, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of God. And it, it confused Nicodemus. Linsky, the commentator, said this. He said, Jesus' word regarding the new birth shatters once for all every supposed excellence of man's attainment. Spiritual birth is something one undergoes, not something he produces. As our efforts had nothing to do with our natural conception and birth, so in an analogous way, Linsky said, but on a far higher plane, regeneration is not a work of ours. And he said, what a blow to Nicodemus. His being a Jew gave him no part in the kingdom. His being a Pharisee, esteemed holier than other people, availed him nothing. His membership in the Sanhedrin and his fame as one of the scribes went for naught. Jesus boldly declares that he is not yet in the kingdom of God. And all on which he had built his hopes throughout a long, arduous life here sank into ruin and became a little worthless heap of ashes. End of quote. 
I mean, imagine being religious all your life and on your way to hell. Not a pagan. Imagine being a Pharisee, a scribe, a member of the Sanhedrin, in the court of law and around the things of Scripture all your life to have Jesus say in Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you. Be gone from me. That's the case here with Nicodemus. And so we begin to ask that question last Sunday. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean, if, if I'm translating it literally as well, what does it mean to be born from above? What does the new birth describe? Or this question, what is the doctrine of regeneration? Let me just take this week to begin to unpack that with you so that as we proceed ahead, you're going to understand what this means. And there could be nothing more important for our church than this. But last week, we begin to define regeneration or the new birth or born again in this way. We said that to be born again is the secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. If you ask me, what does that mean? Just so that we're moving forward on the same page. It is the secret act of God in which God Almighty imparts, we'll unpack that in a moment, spiritual life, breathes spiritual life into those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. Beloved, you know if Ephesians That's what it states as as we understand from the word of God. If we're dead in our trespasses and sins, the only way in man's depravity that anyone could ever enter the kingdom of God is to be born again, to have a work of God. And we call it the secret act of God. You say, Scott, why is it the secret act of God? Because it's often a work that you can't visibly see initially. It's a work done in the heart. It's a work done in the soul. I mean, all I know is I was 14 years old on my way to hell, and I'm telling you in a split second, God Almighty breathed life into me. I mean, what's your testimony? All I know is you're going down a path, moving down a path, and we'll explain this in a moment, and God Almighty causes you to come to life. He imparts, sometimes we say he quickens, but he makes dead people alive. That is the doctrine of regeneration. That's what it means to be born again. It involves a radical change of the soul. It is a change, beloved, that affects the whole of a person. When God gets a hold of you, and when you become a Christian, and when you become regenerated, we we could say, when you gave your life to Christ, I understand the language. It is a radical change. It is a secret act of God that takes place often inside the person. It affects your intellect. It affects your will. It affects your feelings. It affects your emotions. The new birth is so transforming. It never leaves you the same because it is a work of Almighty God on the heart. It is a decisive instantaneous act of God's power on those dead in their sins. Beloved, this is not a process. You are only regenerated once. You do not get born again multiple times. 
You do not go to the altar multiple times. You do not have to confess Christ multiple times. And though it is an instantaneous event, one doesn't always know that. And so sometimes we call it the secret act of God. And I think you would agree with me, some conversions are dramatic. Others are not dramatic. But the change will be evident. So that's why it's the secret act of God. You may not even be conscious of regeneration, but you will see the effects. You say, well, Scott, you're teaching one of the finer points of theology here. Of course I am. Okay? I mean, if you asked me at 14, could I articulate what I just said? No. All I know is I was different. I'm telling you, I got off my knees, and that's just basic, your testimony. I, I was different. God breathed life into me. And I'm telling you, when I got up, my guilt was gone. My, my burden was gone. The penalty of my sin was taken. But more than just that, God Almighty changed my heart. I couldn't explain it. Everything I used to hate, now I begin to love. And the things that I used to love in the world, I begin to hate. And God Almighty just did a supernatural work in my heart, and that's what he does in bringing people to himself. It is an act of God, let me say it this way, in which eternal life is imparted to the believer. In in other words, you know that great scripture in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, when the old things have passed away, all things have become new, and we are a new, what? Creation. That, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that's us. It is the implanting, this to be born again, of a new desire, of a new purpose. It is a miracle that can never leave you the same. That's why when you're struggling talking to somebody, you're thinking of somebody, and you're wondering if they're a Christian, think about this doctrine. Listen, if somebody's a Christian, they've got a new disposition. They've got a new heart. God took their heart of stone out and he made it flesh and he made it soft. And whereas you used to love the things of the world, now you don't love the things of the world. And whereas once you never were bothered by sin, now you're bothered by sin because you have a conscience and you have a new person in you. You've been born again. Let me take you to the scriptures. We've looked at these in John 3. Can I just touch on a few with you? In fact, I'm going to go fast here. Let me see if these come up, okay? Give me the next slide. Um, I'm not going to turn you because I'm going to come back to some of these. Peter uses it. He said, since you have been, here's our word, born again, not of a perishable seed, of an, but, of, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Peter talks about this. So listen, not only does John the apostle address it, the apostle Peter talks about it. John, in his other gospel, you remember that we studied when I first got here, if you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Just giving you a little biblical theology here. Continue to go forward on that. There, in 1 John 3, 9, it says, No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. This is a biblical term. This, I'm just letting you see the scriptures. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And obviously these are the effects, and we'll get to that. 1 John 5, 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So there, there's belief in there. 
And whoever believes in Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. In other words, if you love God, you're going to love the body of Christ as well because He changed your hearts. 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes what? The world. In other words, it's impossible to confess Christ and live in the world as a practice of sin. 1 John 5, 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Okay? There you have the biblical references for this doctrine. But let me take you on here and enumerate some of the key characteristics of regeneration. You know I'm going to have to do this. I'm I'm not satisfied if we just said he told him to be born again. What does it mean? Well, let me just give you these key characteristics of the doctrine of regeneration. First, the cause of our regeneration. In other words, he says you've got to be born again. You say, well, how, how does that work? Let me explain it biblically. God is the cause of our regeneration. That is to say, beloved, that we are passive in regeneration. Let, let me put it in an analogy. Just as you did not choose to be physically born, in a similar way, we were passive in our regeneration. You have been born again. You have been born from above. Look over in your Bible at John chapter 1 in verse 13. Let me just establish these points from the Scripture. Here, we're just illustrating that it's not you. It's not your faith. God caused you to be born again. You're passive in that. He says in verse 13 of John 1, who were born not of blood, in other words, not through family descent, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of what? God. You've been born by God. And so if you're a believer, you understand that he breathed and imparted this spiritual life to you. Look over in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. I just want to touch on these here. What a great text in Ephesians 2. You know, again, where it says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins, you, were, you know, in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. And then it says in 2.4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, comma, look what it says, made us, what? Alive together with Christ. Listen, the cause of our regeneration is almighty God. Dead people can't respond to the things of God. And God, in 2.4, rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved you, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Here's our word. He made you alive together. In other words, he imparted spiritual life to you. That's the doctrine of the new birth. Look just to the right a few chapter or a few books in Colossians. You'll see that thought there. In Colossians, 
whether you're looking up in the scripture or these come up on the screen, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh in 2.13. And God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. But it's very clear there that we don't cause ourselves to be born. God made you alive. Look over, there it is on the scripture there in James 1.18, where it just says there that he, speaking of the goodness of the character of God, of the mercy of God, that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation, no shifting shadow. And then he says in 1.18 that he brought us forth. And that Greek word there for brought us forth is one of those root words of being born again. In other words, you didn't cause yourself to be born again. You were born from above. God Almighty looked down on you and me and had compassion on you and breathed life into you. I think there might be one more in 1 Peter on the next phrase. There it is where it says in 1 Peter chapter 1 in verse 3 that he, it says there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great, there it is again, mercy. It says in verse 3, he has caused us to be born again to the living hope. So listen, if you're here this morning and you're redeemed, then you have to realize that God Almighty opened your heart. You say, well, pastor, and I'll get to this in the weeks to come. Um, then we're witnessing to people um, and we're sharing the good news with them, right? Then God has to open their heart, right? Yes, right? Every time you're exchanging the gospel with somebody, I'm giving words of the gospel. I was about ready to give that to Bolden, but I knew he, he, the Lord's been doing a work in his heart, Okay. But I'm praying at the same time, God, open his eyes. God, open his heart. Because apart from this divine miracle, somebody can't be regenerated, okay? So listen, whereas, understand this, in the, in the doctrine of sanctification, we have a role in that, don't we? To work out our salvation in fear and trembling. But I want you to understand this, and I just have to be honest with you as your pastor. You play no part in your regeneration. Sorry to rock your world if I'm doing that. Because if, if you're the one choosing, then you're going to get the glory. And God's designed all of salvation where it's all grace and all mercy. If he breathed life into you, you say, but, but pastor, I, I was at a place and he showed me my sin. Yeah, he showed you your sin. I was at a place and then, then he, I was learning about Christ and then I, I embraced Christ. Yes, you embraced Christ, but... He caused you to see Christ. This is the doctrine of regeneration. A young Arab was proceeding down the road on a donkey when he came upon a small bird. This is just a story, okay? okay? He came upon a small bird, a sparrow, lying upon his back on the road. And there he was, a small, scrawny object with two thin legs. And if you can picture it, they were pointed skyward. And at first the Arab thought the sparrow was dead. But when he found the bird was alive, however, the Arab got down from his donkey, went forward to speak to him. Are you all right? He said, yes. The sparrow answered, 
Then he said, what are you doing lying on your back with your legs pointed up to the sky? Haven't you heard the rumor? The sparrow asked in return. They say that heaven is going to fall. And if it does, said the Arab, surely you don't think you're going to hold it up with those two scrawny legs. And the bird looked up him with a solemn face for a moment and then retorted, one does the best one can. I mean, we laugh at the story, but the folly of the sparrow is only an illustration of the folly of a human being who thinks they can hold off divine wrath of God's judgment by the scrawny legs of human achievement. I mean, it's the same picture. You can't hold off judgment by your own decision and by your own achievements. In fact, according to John 3, no man can please God either by his own achievements or by his own intellect. And so as he looks at Nicodemus, he says, you've got to be born again. And the cause, beloved, is God. Think about this in Ezekiel. Do we have that up there? I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Listen, God's got to breathe. Maybe the Lord's even this right now, just as we're teaching the word, you're thinking about somebody in your family, you're thinking about a roommate, you're thinking about a neighbor, you're thinking about a relative, you're thinking about a child, a grandchild. Be on your knees for God to open their heart, right? He's got to do that work. Listen, you understand this. Dead men don't resurrect themselves. Regeneration is a sovereign act of God in which man plays no role. And unless God acts first, we will never be reborn in the first place. That's why Paul said in Romans 9, 16, so that it does not depend on human will, he said, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So let me say it this way. Regeneration, you understand this, is a gift of God's grace. It is not something that can be merited. We say in theology systems, it is monergistic. And what we mean by that, it is the work of one person who exercises his power. So this, this doctrine, regeneration, is monergistic. You don't work alongside God. So we would say it's not synergistic, like sanctification. No, it is God breathing life into you. Now, look back in John. Let me be fair. We're talking about the cause, okay? But look back in John chapter 3, 8. It's not only God the Father, but it says this in 3, 8 of John. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And then watch this. So is everyone who is born of the, what? Of the Spirit, So we conclude there from the teaching of Scripture, beloved, that the Spirit of God is directly working on the heart of man and that the Holy Spirit alongside God the Father is the cause of the new birth. So on the one hand, God is making alive, but on the other hand, in John 3, 8, it is the work of the Spirit. So we can conclude that both God the Father, God the Father is the architect, God the Father is the designer of our salvation. It's his plan. And God the Holy Spirit applies the work of a son. They are the cause of our regeneration. 
Secondly, let me address this. What's the instrument of regeneration? I mean, okay, Scott, it still seems, okay, it's a work of God. It's like the wind blowing. It's a sovereign act of God. You don't know where it's going to blow, but you see, the, you say, well, then what's the instrument of our regeneration? Look at this scripture. This is precious. I'm not going to spend long here. Since you have been born again, not of the perishable seed, but of imperishable through, here's the instrument, the living and abiding, what? Word of God. It says there that the word of the Lord remains forever. What I'm saying is this, is that God Almighty is the one who breathes life. The instrument that God uses to regenerate men, women, and children is the what? The word of God. That's what the scripture says. In other words, if you want to be an effective agent to tell people, you got to get people to the book, do you not? In fact, there in James 1.18, of his own will, he, God, brought us forth by the what? The word of truth. So all I know is it's a sovereign act of God, but the instrument in which he uses is the clear precision and teaching of the word of God. So, beloved, listen, as we move forward as a church, at Grace Church, we're not going to do anything else but the Word of God, right? I mean, I think of youth groups scattered across the globe playing games and never bringing people to this book. Listen, the only hope for a soul to be redeemed is that God Almighty's got to breathe life into him, and then he uses the teaching of the Word of God to do that. A couple weeks ago, I was driving down my street, I think it's called 396, or it's called Kern. I, I, I don't know. It was like four names for every street out here, right? And I came to this little bridge over by the baseball field, and I'm like, man, this just looks different here. And I came to the little bridge where I turn right, and I take uh, my kids to Kingsburg High School, and it looked different because I had to kind of sometimes go really slow to the corner, look around the tree to make sure I didn't, and all of a sudden, that whole 20-acre piece was cleaned it was just all the trees were ripped out by an excavator right that's the instrument i mean what would that have been like if i would have told Lindsay and lauren hey i want you to go get your axes and i want you to take every tree down on this particular farm no that that farmer is going to get the right tool that farmer is going to grab the right piece of equipment to get those trees out and put something new down. So he sends in the instrument of the excavator to haul that tree out. You say, well, yeah, that's, that's what they use. Listen, I'm telling you, in the doctrine of regeneration, the instrument of this regeneration that brings it about is the teaching of Scripture. And then you think about how many pastors stand up all over the globe today and they got nothing to say out of this book. They don't even give their time to this book. And so we've got to make sure that we're focused on that. Listen, tonight at Explorers, the Word will be taught. Tonight at Reality, the Word will be taught. Tonight at Resolved, at the Forge, in the men and women's Bible study, the words, what what else are we going to do? 
we're going to go to the means that God's provided to break up, if you will, hard stones. And he does so through the teaching of the word of God. So let me say this in another statement. Regeneration occurs when the Bible is preached, when the Bible is taught, when the Bible is read. So it comes in preaching, in teaching, in reading. Sometimes God breathes people to life in their memory. Is that fair? You say memory what? Memory of the word of God. In other words, I, for when I was a young man growing up, man, I just was around the word. I was pagan from 8 to 14 on my way to hell. But, but I just was listening to so much truth that that one night, and I've told you that story, I'm out there and God sins. I, I mean that supernaturally. He makes me remember what I'd been studying. It was just one verse. Now, I didn't have my Bible open, but it's the Bible. He sent that one verse in, and I've told you that, James 2, 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point, he's become guilty of what? Oh, all it took is that. God, I, I believe that scripture caused my heart to be born again because in that moment right there at that time on my driveway, I knew without a shadow of a doubt I was on my way to hell. I was a condemned sinner, and I was in big trouble. I said, well, it, it, that's how God works. So that's why we got to get the word to people, okay? Because he's going to use it. It's the message about Christ. The word is so powerful. And beloved, I guess I've been at this long enough. I'm not changing. I got no other gimmick. I got no other gadgets. We got no other program here. What people need in the San Joaquin Valley is the purity of God's word preached. And it needs to be believed. And it needs to be taught. And Bible studies need to be around. And, and the reason I say that is, why would I do something? It'd be like me taking an axe out to that 20-acre piece and say, I'm going to cut down all these trees with an axe. No, I'm going to get the excavator. We're going to pull them out. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged what? Sword. You're right. It can pierce both bone and marrow. Able to, let's get people to the Word. So this is what happens to me because... I believe it. I just want you to know that. And when people don't teach it and hold to it, it just, it just bugs me. Because here's what will happen to me. Often, two weeks ago, I'm at a wedding. And a man will come up to me. And we're at his home. There's a wedding taking place there. And he said, hey, Pastor Scott, I, I wanted to meet you. And uh, I said, ah, good to meet you, Keith. And glad to meet you. Thanks for opening your home, beautiful home in Placerita Canyon. He says, I, I want you to meet my son, Evan, because three years ago when you were preaching at a winter camp when he was in junior high, he gave his life to Christ. This is what happens. Now, I didn't know that, but all I know is when a pastor or a youth pastor or any, a, a lay worker stands up and uses this book and you go into the prison ministry, God Almighty is going to take that word and he's going to redeem his people, isn't he? So listen, you've got to have such a deep passion for this word that when you're sharing the gospel with people, you understand that God has designed the instrument of regeneration not to be special music, 
Not to be five more choruses, right? Not to be an emotional high. Not some bizarre Christian experience. He's going to use the power of the word of God and the soul of a person to quicken their life from the dead. It is the message about Christ that brings this. Listen, it is not psychology. It is not slick marketing. It is not good works. It is only the person of Christ. He must be preached and he must be exalted in all of our ministries at Grace Church of the valley amen so let me take you on thirdly and, and i'm getting real picky here with you but i want you to understand this when's the time of our regeneration i didn't know what to call us i wasn't sure if to call it the time of our regeneration or the sequence of our regeneration and i'm going to go into a finer point here and if you think it was too much tell me afterward hey pastor just get on you didn't need to tell me that but i want to make this a big deal though in my heart is regeneration must come before we can respond in saving faith. That's what I want to say. It comes before we can respond in saving faith. In other words, let me make this clear to you. Your faith in Christ does not activate your regeneration. Now, some people teach that. There's a guy named lawyer named Charles Finney. He taught that. He he taught that if he could get people to the anxious bench and make them come to faith and logically show them the reason for Christ and they would express faith, then as they came to saving faith, it would regenerate their heart. But that's not what the scripture says. Your faith, listen, does not activate regeneration. You are, let me put it this way, regenerated, okay? And then God grants you faith and repentance as a gift, Okay, that's the nature of it. In Acts 16, 14, it said, speaking of Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. And then after the Lord opened her heart, she was able to respond in faith. The Lord had to do the work first. Sproul put it this way. He said, realize it is not as if dead people have faith. And because of their faith, God agrees to regenerate them. Rather, it is because God has regenerated us and given us new life that we have faith. I think that's well said. Is this not what Jesus said when he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. You got to be drawn. It's a sovereign act of God. He also said in John 6, 65, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father, okay? And and again, these are the scriptures in Ephesians. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then after that, in Ephesians 2, 8, by grace you have been saved through what? Faith, okay? Now, Theologians have specific terms to a number of these events in salvation. They have often listed them in a specific order in which they believe they occur in our lives. And I think there's some value to this. This list is sometimes referred to by a Latin phrase called the ordo salutis, which simply means the order of salvation. Can I just show you a picture of this? Let me bring this up. Can you see that? Now, Listen, I don't want you to think, wow, I can't grasp this. Yes, you can grasp this. And and listen, if if you don't understand this, it's okay. 
Because when I got saved at 14, if you asked me, did I understand that? No. All I knew was I was on my way to hell until God breathed life in me. But let me show you a panoramic view of your salvation, of what God does in the order of salvation. We usually say, number one, it begins with calling. It begins with the doctrine of election. It begins with an eternity past. And we don't have time here, but in Ephesians 1, 4, in love, he predestined us according, you know, to his perfect plan. Then, secondly, the gospel call comes out. It's the preached word and the gospel, what I just spoke about. Then when that gospel word goes out, within God's sovereignty, hearts are regenerated. Hearts are born again as that call goes out. When a man or woman is regenerated, you are then given conversion, okay? You're then led to faith and repentance in Christ. Then at the same time, simultaneously, I don't know if this helps you, you're justified. We've talked about this in the summertime. Then at that time, you are adopted into God's family. It leads into the doctrine of sanctification in your life where now all of a sudden, because you've been born again, you want to be more like Christ. It leads to the doctrine of perseverance, which means you're going to remain a Christian. And you're going to persevere, number one, because God Almighty called you. Number two, he regenerated you. He converted you. You don't ever lose your salvation because the truth of the doctrine of perseverance is it's not you persevering. It's God persevering through you and he's going to hold on to you. That leads up to death, going to be with the Lord and to the doctrine of glorification. So the reason I wanted to show you this is when we talk about the doctrine of regeneration, it fits into the total plan of salvation. Now, let me make a note here to you, is that items two through six, okay, and part of verse seven are all involved in becoming a Christian, okay? I said part of seven, because remember when we talked about that in the summer, you, in sanctification, you're positionally made whole, but you're also encouraged to practice becoming more holy. But all that occurred when you became a Christian. Now, you might say, I, I, I didn't know that. Well, I'm telling you. And, and, and I think there's some truth to this here because some people struggle with perseverance, but how could God ever lose you if God called you? How could you ever become unborn again and therefore not persevere? If, if you've been born again and regenerated, he gave you faith and repentance as a gift. And I want to be clear there. People do come to, I came to saving faith in Christ. I came to the doctrine of repentance and confess my sins, but it was because God opened my heart and gave me conversion and those two uh, principles as a gift. So listen, two through six and part of seven are all involved in becoming a Christian. And number seven and eight work themselves out in this life. Number nine occurs at the end of this life. And number 10 occurs when Jesus returns. I hope that helps you. But that's how it fits into the doctrine of salvation. Now, if you get confused by all of that, I understand. All I know is that the Lord is the one 
who's doing this. And all these aspects are involved in the doctrine of regeneration. And ultimately, they are grand pictures of our salvation, okay? And that leads now to my fourth and final point, okay? We've looked at the cause of regeneration, the instrument, the time of it. There you had it on that list. And now finally, the results of regeneration. And I don't know why, but I was very anxious to get to this point. So I think this needs to be heard and understood by all of us. When God breathes life into a person, when you were, let me put it this way, dead in your sins. I was dead, okay, as a teenager. I was running from God. There's no question I was. I don't want God to tell me what to do. I'm running from him. As a 14-year-old, I had my fist up to him. I didn't want to get, I didn't want to let him be the Lord of my life, okay? But what, whatever happened is, what happened is that the hound of heaven was after me. Praise God for his grace, amen? He caught up with me. He caught up with you. He miraculously changed your heart. He gives you faith and repentance as a gift. And then all of a sudden, as your heart is reborn, there is a trusting in Christ. There is an assurance in Christ. There is an assurance of the forgiveness of sins. There is a newfound desire for spiritual growth. There is a newfound desire for prayer. There is all of a sudden a replacement for all your old friends with a new love called the local church. There is a delight and a desire for worship. There is a desire for fellowship. There is a desire to tell others because those are the results of the new birth. And beloved, I just want to be real clear. If there's no change, there's no Jesus. When he comes in and cleans house on a man, and when he comes in and cleans house on a woman, he never leaves them the same. So here's what will happen in your life. Here it is. Number one, go to the text in your Bible, okay? And I want you to understand this because it could be that as I'm preaching, you might recognize I've never been born again. Well, listen, 1 John 3, 9. I have there in a statement, we will not live in habitual sin. You say, well, Scott, where, where do you find that? Well, in the text, look, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been, what? Born of God. And you'll notice that it's not an external righteousness What the text is saying is because you've been born of God, you can no longer keep practicing sinning. So rather than saying that someone is a carnal Christian, all I know is when God changes the heart, when he works the new soul and the new desire and the new purpose, you can't live in a habitual pattern of sin and claim to be a Christian. Because no one, it says it so clear there, makes a, no one born of God. In other words, the seed that is in that man or that woman, as it says in 3.9, so he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So listen, this is the result of regeneration. And what I'm telling you is you've grown up in a culture where people have peddled long and hard about decisional regeneration, come down an aisle, pray a prayer, sign on the dotted line, and you're saved. Now listen, forget all that external stuff, Okay. Forget about a decision. You never actually see it in the New Testament where somebody would come forward. 
when God breathes life into you, he never leaves you the same. You can't keep on sinning. In fact, I tell you, one of the first marks that I knew I was a, was a saved believer is when I did the stuff that I had done before, all of a sudden now I was guilty because I had the Holy Spirit lift, living in me. Secondly, on a positive note, you will obey God as a pattern in life. Look at 1 John 2.29. It says there, um, we, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been, what? Born of him. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. The issue here is not perfection. The issue here is direction of one's life. When you come to Christ, you no longer want to habitually sin. On the positive note, you want to obey him. Why? Externals? No. Is, is it to please God? Not necessarily. You obey him. Uh, it's good to please God. Your heart's different. Your mind's different. Have you ever felt like you're talking to someone and you're pulling teeth? You ever get people who have no love for truth, no love for the local church, no love for service, no love for scripture, no love for worship at large, no love for holiness, and yet all at the same time they say they're a Christian? Look in. Examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith because when God performs the miracle, he changes this. This sounds funny. The third one, we will love others. Look at 1 John 4, 7. Look there. We read it earlier. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been what? Born of God. It's a sign. It's a mark. It's a result of regeneration. You love people. And I know I'm preaching to the choir to you. But listen, you be very careful about people who say they love Christ and they have nothing to do with this. Listen, I just genuinely want you to know you. This is the highlight of my week to be gathered with you. This is the, I've been all over the country at different pieces this week. But I'm, it's so fun to be at membership class. Why? Because I know God has changed me and I want to be with the body of Christ. Listen, if you love God, then you're going to love other people. And whereas before you didn't want anything to do with the Lord, once he gets a hold of you, you're going to love the people that he loves. Number four there, you will be, it says you will overcome the world. Look at 1 John 5, 3 and 4. It says there, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes what? The world. You know, I couldn't help but think, and I want to be careful what I say, of all the stuff said this week on Lamar Odom all the prayers that went up on his behalf. But all I just know is when you're in Christ, you're not going to find yourself in a place like that, right? When you're in Christ, you may, you may have setbacks. You're not going to be sinless perfect, but the direction of your life is you're going to overcome the world because he caused his seed to abide in you and you're going to go overcome. Number five, his commandments are not burdensome. It's what we just read in number six. You're protected from Satan. Satan can't touch you, okay? Because it even says that in 5.18. He cannot harm you, and greater is he in 4.14 in you than is he that is in the world. So listen, you'll not live in continual sin. You will obey God in persistent practice. You will love God and the local church. You will overcome as a pattern of life temptation, and you will be kept safe from the evil one. Those are all the results of regeneration. So he says to Nicodemus, unless you've been born again, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. Listen, do you know the Savior this morning? Have you, have you ever come to a place where he's opened your heart? 
Listen, if you haven't, you can beat your breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Fall on your knees and confess him, and he will come to you. Amen? Listen, this is not easy to preach this right there, but these are the biblical results of what happens when a man or woman or even a child has been redeemed. Amen? Amen.